Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Provcast. My name is Mark Melton, and I'm the managing editor of Providence. And today we are speaking with Olivia Enos at the Heritage Foundation, and we're going to be talking about China, Hong Kong, and some other related issues. So first off, Olivia, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you so much for having me on. So the last time we had you on was in May 2020, uh, at least on the Provcast. You've written articles for Providence, but since May 2020, we haven't had you on. And at that time, we were talking about Hong Kong. So a few things have happened in the past two years. So could you give us an <laughs> update on the current situation in Hong Kong? Yeah, just a few things have happened. <laughs> um, so, of course, uh, you know, 2019 was an important time in Hong Kong because you saw millions of people taking to the streets in protest of um, a then-proposed extradition law. And that created a lot of concern in the city-state that Beijing was interfering in Hong Kong and that the freedoms that they held so dear were under duress. I think some would say that the Hong Kong protesters saw the writing on the wall before the rest of the world did. And, um, you know, literally in response to those protests, uh, Beijing did clamp down on Hong Kong, introducing um, a new national security law that has truly had a chilling effect on civil and political liberties in Hong Kong. Since um, the national security laws introduction, you have seen the mass jailing and imprisonment of pro-democracy leaders. You've seen the shuttering of um, important news media elements like Apple Daily, which was run by the infamous Jimmy Lai. He also faces um, prison time and various charges. Um, and just mo most recently, um, we even see them targeting persons of faith, including 90-year-old, yes, that's right, 90-year-old Cardinal Zen, who is a leader in the Catholic Church in Hong Kong. Um, he and five other individuals um, were taken into custody just over the last week or so. Um, because of the role that they played in providing legal support and financial support to pro-democracy protesters. Hong Kong's a totally different place um, from what it was even when we were talking um, in 2020 and in 2019. Um, I think it's really hard to make a case uh, that we will uh, see the resurgence of civil and political liberties and freedom in Hong Kong anytime soon. Um, and so there's a real need, I think, to offer help to Hong Kong people, particularly in more permanent ways, if we can. And you mentioned Cardinal Zen, and earlier this week you wrote an article specifically about him. So you mentioned that he was helping some pro-democracy movements, but what is the importance of Cardinal Zen? Like, what you know, is his background, and uh, what did... Uh, you know, what does this arrest mean for Hong Kong generally and also religious liberty there? Yeah, I mean, Cardinal Zen is both a religious leader, a leader in the Catholic Church, as well as a political leader. Um, I think that it flows very naturally from the gospel um, that you would be seeking to safeguard and to preserve freedom in all of its forms and viewing religious freedom itself as a, as a first freedom. Um, Cardinal Zen was an indispensable uh, part of that movement, um, was critical to providing support to so many and a voice of reason in Hong Kong in the midst of what has been a very chaotic time for people. 
Um, I think that Cardinal Zen's arrest um, serves as a reminder of the the fact that one, the buck doesn't stop anywhere for Beijing. They're willing to target even the most peaceful of leaders if they see it as threatening to their power. This is true of the Chinese Communist Party. We've borne witness to it over the last several years in so many different forms. Um, but I think his uh, his arrest is a reminder of that and also a rem- reminder of the permanence of the descent of Hong Kong away from a freedom-loving city um, towards a very uh, relatively authoritarian one. I think it also serves as a reminder that Beijing has made some, uh, that, that the Vatican has made some very uncomfortable deals with Beijing. Um, back in 2018, Uh, They started cozying up to Beijing much more actively um, when they cemented a new deal that, if I'm not mistaken, allows um, China to appoint bishops in the Catholic Church and gives the Pope veto power over those candidates that um, China puts forward. A lot of people in 2018 worried that this would result in the Vatican, which now officially recognizes Taiwan as the official representative of the Catholic Church in China, that they might eventually switch it to mainland China or the People's Republic of China. Um, And so I think that this should be a warning as well um, to the Catholic Church to, you know, maybe even walk back its 2018 deal, but certainly not to improve relations further and certainly not to switch its recognition from Taiwan to Beijing. Um, So I think this is a very important moment and one that hopefully prompts action both diplomatically from the U.S. and from the rest of the world, but also perhaps um, by offering, as I mentioned, some more permanent solutions um, for safe haven here in the U.S., if possible. Maybe you can correct me on this, but is China, so China, the mainland, uh, will have like a recognized church and then unrecognized you know, home churches, basically. And uh, is Hong Kong part was part of that same system? Or did it have its own separate system where like the Catholic Church didn't have to have like recognized bishops and cardinals the same way I think in the mainland they do? Yeah, I don't think that that was the case. I don't think that they had to be recognized, although I would need to double check that. Um, But I don't believe that churches were operating in an underground sense in Hong Kong. Um, There's a large both Catholic and Protestant population in Hong Kong. The same is true in Taiwan. Um, Churches are certainly not underground in Taiwan. I don't believe they were underground in Hong Kong, although I would be curious after the national security law went into effect whether or not persons of faith feel less safe in practicing their most closely held beliefs. Um, but as you mentioned, yes, there are officially recognized churches um, that are condoned by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, basically, those that are condoned by the CCP um, are condoned because they comport with the Chinese Communist Party's view of religion. And so I think it's very difficult um, to say that it is, you know, a like normal practicing of um, Catholicism or of uh, Protestantism. And so I think that's why you have such a large, as you said, house church movement or underground church movement um, in China. To listeners, I would commend um, a report. It was, I can't remember what year it was written, but it's by Sarah Cook. Um, and it's on uh, the plight of religious persons in China. 
she published that uh, at Freedom House, and it just gives it a fantastic survey of what it is like to be an officially recognized um, religious group versus those that are unrecognized um, in their various forms. And it's a very excellent report. <laughs> and for listeners, as usual, I will post in the show notes some different links to uh, not only Olivia's article that I've been mentioning earlier, but as well as any of these other reports. In the article you wrote, you mentioned about priority two status, refugee status for these Hong Kongers. So what do you, what is priority two and why does the Hong Kong situation warrant it? Yeah, great question. Um, so priority two refugee status is um, a special status where a group can be labeled as a group of special humanitarian concern by the U.S. government. When they receive this status, um, individuals can apply for resettlement in the United States, whether they are inside their country of origin or most likely in the Hong Kong case outside of the city, um, to be able to apply for resettlement directly through the U.S. That means that they can bypass referral from the US, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, from non-governmental organizations, as well as from embassies. So it expedites the process for resettlement. I think that it is hard to argue, one, that the situation facing Hong Kongers is temporary, which there have been temporary forms of relief that have been extended to them by the United States. Um, and so a more permanent option really needs to be sought. And I think that the arrest of Cardinal Zen, as well as um, the five others who were involved in the pro-democracy movement and the many, many others who have been arrested, Joshua Wong, Agnes Chow, um, Ivan Lam, Jimmy Lai, so many come to mind. There are others who have fought for the cause of freedom, who share in this belief that freedom should be cherished and preserved and recognize just how fragile it is. Those are the types of folks that you want to bring to the U.S. And so um, this is something that can be done whether um, by the U.S. Congress or, honestly, by the Biden administration. Um, the Biden administration actually did this for Afghan refugees after the U.S. withdrawal last year. Um, and so they could literally wake up any day and decide we are going to extend priority to refugee status to Hong Kongers. And I think they should do it for Hong Kongers. I also think they should do it for Uyghurs um, because the Uyghurs also face a permanent state of persecution and are in need of expedited um, ability to be resettled. And one other thing I wanted to say on the expedited side of things, um, the reason why it's considered expedited is because you get to skip that referral step before entering into the typical U.S. process for resettlement. But otherwise, those refugees are subject to the same type of very rigorous vetting that is required of all refugees, um, which I think is a very important element especially if you're wanting to make sure that these people are coming here for the right reasons. Um, so this is why I think P2 would be excellent and is something both Congress and the administration should be considering very actively right now. And that referral has to come through the United Nations and embassy and some NGOs. Is that right? At NGOs. That referral um, is what is typical for the refugee resettlement process, but they would get to skip that part of it. Um, they would get to just apply directly to the U.S. system where they'd be vetted by um, the Department of Homeland Security and by um, the Bureau of Population, Refugees and Migration at State Department. And uh, where are they during that referral? I mean, during that, you know, vetting process? 
Um, some of them, some of them could be in a third country. Um, it depends on the way that they structure the priority to refugee um, program, but they could be in a, a second country outside of Hong Kong. Um, if they came to the U.S., um, like if they were actually in the U.S., then they would be eligible for asylum, which would be a separate process, just to be clear. Okay. Sorry, I know we're getting into the weeds here on all the immigration stuff, but it's always really fascinating, I think, to to consider um, a lot of the challenges that refugees in general face and asylum seekers as well. Well, I think the listeners would appreciate kind of these more details than you can get out of a tweet. Yes, so, absolutely. <laughs> all right. You also recently wrote about Europe's relationship with China, um, especially during uh, war in Ukraine. And you, uh, in that article, you write about how uh, the United States has been warning Europe about China. And you raise the question of whether or not China will or Europe will heed those warnings. So uh, what is the kind of the basic argument you make in that article? Yeah, so this article was inspired by some recent travels that um, I took alongside of some of my other colleagues at Heritage both last fall. And then earlier this spring, um, we traveled to Brussels, to London, to Warsaw, to Strasbourg, and also to Berlin. And the purpose of those travels was to kind of get a, a finger on the pulse of where Europe was at in terms of uh, understanding the threat posed by China. And um, you know, what was really surprising and a big takeaway from those travels was that many of the concerns over China, whether it's human rights, security, economic, were relegated to the backbenches of parliaments and honestly and very sadly to the periphery of policymaking. Um, and here in the U.S., I think there's really broad-based consensus about the threat that China poses, um, especially in the wake of the pandemic, after everything we bore witness to in Hong Kong, and of course, Uyghur genocide. In Europe, um, while there is some appreciation and some minimal action, including multilateral sanctions, where um, the European Union and the UK joined forces with the US um, in targeting individuals responsible for genocide uh, taking place, against the Uyghurs, um, very little in the way of action has been taken otherwise. And with Ukraine happening, I was struck by the fact that the U.S. had issued so many warning signs saying, looks like Russia's going to invade Ukraine. And many European partners were saying, nah, we don't think it's going to happen. We're not too worried. And then what, what happened? Of course, we've, we've all borne witness to the horrors that are taking place uh, in Ukraine. And so I'm concerned that Europe will be similarly blind um, and similarly deaf to the fact that the U.S. is issuing warning signs about China. Um, and so I'm concerned that there isn't going to be much follow-on action and that we're going to be behind the eight ball again. And I think it's really important for the U.S., with allies um, in Europe and also in Asia to be very clear-eyed about the threat that China poses, not only from a security standpoint, but also from a values one, as we watch them degrade and erode the rights and freedoms of their own people. Um, so I'm very concerned, um, for sure. You mentioned that there is bipartisan consensus about China being a threat in the United States, though it seems that there are sometimes variations on how the United States should 
respond to that threat. So could you give an assessment of the Biden administration's response? Yeah. So, you know, I think that um, the Biden administration has not been as clear eyed on the threat about China as they should be. China is the number one threat to U.S. foreign policy interests. And the same is true, I would argue, for Europe, particularly in the long term. Um, And I think that the Biden administration has had an incredibly mixed response when it comes to China. Um, There is bipartisan, shared bipartisan concern that I think is reflected, especially on Capitol Hill's actions and activities. Um, Right now, for example, they're considering um, some pretty significant China legislation. um, And of course, last December passed the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. But the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act was not a given. The Biden administration was lobbying against it. And for listeners who uh, don't know what the act does, it creates a rebuttable presumption uh, in U.S. law that all goods produced in Xinjiang or through various forced labor transfer programs that involve Uyghurs and others, they are considered to be produced with forced labor. And the Biden administration was trying to obstruct its passage in part because it has interest in collaborating with China over uh, combating climate change. And so I think that there are definitely some hiccups, uh, or maybe even more than hiccups, in the Biden administration's clarity on China. Um, There have been some bright spots, like the fact that they reaffirmed the Trump administration's determination that Uyghurs are facing ongoing genocide and crimes against humanity. Um, But I think that the administration's response has been Um, somewhat lackluster when it comes to tackling the China challenge and maybe even a little bit distracted um, as Ukraine is going on. But we will see. Um, Biden is slated to go uh, on a visit to Japan and Korea in the next week. It's very good that he's going there to reassure allies and partners um, of U.S. commitments to the region. But we'll see what practical things come out of that visit, if any. And I know you don't focus on the economic impact of COVID on China, but you mentioned that there are some others at Heritage who cover the topic. So could you give kind of a summary of or bird's eye view of what's going on in that while we're talking about China? Yeah, absolutely. So I think everybody has been watching um, with quite a bit of consternation as we've seen various Chinese cities being essentially put it shut down um, for lack of a better term. I mean, all of them have gone into a lot of them have gone into lockdown. Um, Shanghai, I think, has been the one that's received the, the most coverage. And a lot of the firsthand accounts from Shanghai are pretty terrifying. People locked essentially in their apartments, fearful about whether or not they'll be able to get basic food, medical supplies and otherwise. Um, and I, I read a fabulous article in Foreign Affairs earlier this week where they were saying that, um, quote unquote, China has less of an epidemiological challenge with the Omicron variant that is sweeping through China right now, and more of a political one. And I think that um, this person got it absolutely right. I'm happy to share the link so that uh, readers can can read this article because it was pretty fabulous. Um, But it was it's true. I think that the Chinese Communist Party may have a a bit of a crisis of confidence as they have really 
rested the success of Xi Jinping and of the CCP on their ability to maintain this so-called zero COVID policy. And the zero COVID policy is not attainable. Um, And so people are getting frustrated, uh, and rightfully so, by having to be in this lockdown situation that is so incredibly draconian. Um, And many have said it's not even very scientifically rooted. Um, Others are concerned, as you mentioned, Mark, at at the outset, with the economic impact of shutting down, um, especially Shanghai, which is one of China's most economically active cities. Um, And so my colleague, Minhua um, uh, Chung, has written on this issue for Heritage at the Daily Signal. I'm happy to provide a link to it where she goes into a very detailed analysis of the economic impacts of the shutdown right now of the lockdowns um, throughout China. And then another one of my fabulous colleagues, Michael Cunningham, um, also wrote an article for Heritage looking at some of the political consequences to Xi. So I would commend those both um, to listeners. And yes, I think it is a very important reminder of the great lengths that the Chinese Communist Party will go to in order to safeguard their power and that they do not care about individual liberty and civil and political rights uh, in in the ways that um, republics and democracies care about them. And so it's, yeah, freedom is very fragile. And seeing the ways in which Beijing has undermined freedom in basically every corner of society is a reminder of the degree to which that is true. And kind of the final topic here, you, we've already talked about the Uyghurs a little bit. And for regular listeners, you will know that back in, I believe, February, shortly before the Ukraine war you know, kicked off, we talked with some experts about the sanctions or the not the sanctions, but the force prevention or Forced Labor Prevention Act, if I get that name correctly, that the <laughs> Congress is working on. So uh, since February or since you know that's been going on, Olivia, what are some of the updates from the past couple or so months? Yeah, well, you know, Uyghurs continue to face um, truly remarkable and historic levels of persecution by the Chinese Communist Party. It is, uh, as the Trump administration said and the Biden administration has affirmed, ongoing genocide and crimes against humanity. And people there um, are in need of our help. That was why it was so great when uh, U.S. Congress did step up past the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act last December. Since that time, there have been a number of steps required for the implementation of that bill, including a public comment period where um, civil society, including myself and a a former colleague of mine, submitted public comment outlining ways that the law can be um, strengthened through its implementation. And then um, they're slated to release a strategy that will guide um, its implementation, which is set to happen in June. Um, So I think this is incredibly important. One other thing that's very important about it is that it has sparked some interest across the globe, including um, the EU, which is promising to introduce some similar legislation that would complement the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. Because even if we don't enable goods produced with forced labor to enter the US market, um, it can easily find a home elsewhere if other capitals across the globe do not implement similar measures. So we'd be very encouraged to see the EU taking a step like that. 
Another, uh, however, more discouraging development is that uh, Michelle Bachelet, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights um, at the United Nations, has told the rest of the world that she plans to go visit Xinjiang. This trip should not happen uh, because um, it is going to be a propaganda opportunity for the Chinese Communist Party, and many are concerned since um, the UN High Co- or the the Human Rights Council has held up an important report that they've already done the research for um, about the situation facing Uyghurs, that Bachelet will not raise the very important issues of getting setting prisoners free, meeting families. Um, family members of of people who are detained um, and prioritizing access to the camps. And so I'm very worried that this trip is going to be just an opportunity for the CCP to whitewash the massive crimes um, that they are committing. So I think those are sort of trends to watch um, here in the near term. And, you know, one sort of final sad thing um, to acknowledge and, and that serves as a reminder before Bachelet goes on this visit is that um, there has been a leak of documents um, with 10,000 names on it, including Uyghurs and others that are held in Xinjiang today. This revelation was incredibly important because it outlined the reasons for why people were um, imprisoned um, Almost all of them were Uyghur, so they were targeted for uh, on religious grounds and unjustly labeled with terrorism charges. And um, one AP report, I believe, said that um, Xinjiang has the highest percentage of people who are imprisoned of any place around the globe. So if that doesn't drive home the point, um, and if the, the sheer numbers of between 1.8 million to 3 million Uyghurs being held in detention does not um, arrest us and cause us to want to take action, I'm not sure what will, because um, the Uyghur people are suffering in relative anonymity today, and they need advocates um, for people here in D.C. and all across the globe to speak for them since they cannot speak for themselves. And this leak is of Chinese documents? Yes. Yes. Well, Olivia, thank you so much for joining us on the Profcast today and talking about these important issues. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be back. <laughs>